If I seem especially anointed this morning, it's because I had military-grade espresso. (laughs) So I am either shaking in the spirit or just jittering because of the jolt of caffeine. So I want to start with two stories, two events that are separated by almost 1,600 years and then connect to the text that we, we just heard. It, January 23rd, 404, so a little more than 1,600 years ago, in Carthage, which is in North Africa, which at the time was the second largest city in the Roman Empire west of Rome, massive city at the time, St. Augustine was invited to give a sermon and gave a sermon, January 23rd, 404, a sermon on obedience. Now, this is particularly humorous because it's one of, if not the longest sermons on record we have from him, and we have hundreds of his sermons. And it's one of the funniest, and it's easily the angriest. And it's all of that at once. So it's a long, angry, funny sermon. This morning, I promise there, there won't be any anger in my sermon. Probably not very much humor, and I'll try to keep it short. Certainly, at least compared to to what he did. What makes this sermon particularly memorable, though, is not its length or its humor or even how heated it is, but what occasioned it. So Augustine, at the time, was about 50 years old, just a little bit older than I am now. He had already been a bishop for 10 years at this point. And he had come to Carthage, as he often did at that point in his life, to preach on a special day. So even though he was bishop in Hippo, which was a smaller, relatively insignificant city, he was often invited to major cities, including Hippo, including Carthage, to give sermons on special occasions. Well, the day before, January 22nd, was the feast day for St. Vincent. And at this time in African Christianity, the martyrs were everything, but not for the reasons you imagine. In, in ancient cultures, feast days, f- saints' days, were like what we think of as Mardi Gras. So, by the way... My first encounter with Mardi Gras when I went to a Bible school where Julie and I met was a missions trip to Mardi Gras. Maybe not the best idea to send kids who were raised in Pentecostal churches, you know, we didn't have televisions, to send us out into Mardi Gras for our first mission experience. Someday I'll tell you about the the stories, the the wisdom we gleaned from from that experience. But in in Carthage around this time, whenever there were feast days, like the feast day for St. Vincent, they would throw parties, wild, drunken, illicit parties. And you, you really couldn't tell the difference anymore between pagan celebrations and Christian days of prayer. And so, and Augustine talks about this in in his sermon and remembers when he participated in that illicit activity. So he's, he's been invited to give this sermon on January 22nd, huge crowd. And the leading bishop, the bishop who had invited Augustine to speak was a man named Aurelius. And he had decided that day to keep the crowds back a bit. So the way that this basilica was laid out, there was a communion table, an altar in the very center of the room, huge, huge basilica. And people were gathered up and around that altar. And during worship in those days, people stood. They did not sit. So they would be standing for hours and hours during this worship experience. So they're all standing there behind the railing. And again, they've been drinking. It's Mardi Gras atmosphere. And Augustine gets up to give his sermon. 
which I have yet to be able to do. I, maybe we should encourage that after I'm, after I'm priested. We can kind of, you know, serve Bloody Marys at the door for a couple of hours. <laughs> Just see what that's like, what it's like to engage with a, with a crowd of people who've, who are liquored up. But that's, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. So imagine hundreds, maybe thousands of people crowded into this basilica, crazy things happening at the door. Everybody's wearing beads. Everybody's had too much alcohol. They're pressed around the table, and Aurelius had set it up so that in what's called the apse, which is kind of the front of the church, a kind of dome-shaped area at the, at the head of the church, there is a movable pulpit like this one. And Augustine is going to speak there, and everybody in the crowd is standing in the middle of the church. Well, like I said, they had been drinking. And so they start yelling at him for him to move the pulpit closer to them so they could see him. And Augustine gets angry because they won't shut up. He can't get into his sermon because they keep screaming for him to get closer. And he loses his temper and leaves without giving his sermon. Just walks off the stage, which is something else I want to try to do at some point. <laughs> so he just, he just leaves. Well, the next day, which is the day we have the sermon of, his bishop makes him come back and give the sermon that he had refused to give the day before. So the first part of this sermon that we have record of is Augustine saying, okay, we all know what happened yesterday, and he says, I'm more to blame than you are. And then from that point, he just excoriates them for how rebellious they are. <laughs> Maybe my favorite part of the sermon is when he says, now you notice I left yesterday without talking to my bishop, because if I had asked my bishop whether or not I could leave without giving the sermon, he would have told me no, and I have to obey. So I knew I would rather depend upon his forgiveness than his permission. I mean, think about that. 1,600 years ago in Carthage, it was true that it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And nothing has changed, really. So he admits in this sermon that, that he, he had done that, knowing that Aurelius would forgive him. And he said, but part of the forgiveness required was for me to speak to you today. So he's been required to come back and, and give this sermon. And in the sermon... He, he's, he slides back and forth. And what we have, by the way, is not the text that he read, but what someone wrote down as he was speaking. So he's shifting back and forth between what he obviously wants to teach them, and he's getting lost in how angry he still is. I mean, at one point he said, you know, it wasn't my idea to put the pulpit up there in the first place. <laughs> Again, like passive-aggressively blaming his bishop for, <laughs> I want to do that too at some point, <laughs> for... Having put him in that position, another time he said, you know, what we were asking of you, you know, wasn't that much, but that's how stubborn you are. And he compares them to certain animals that are known to be stubborn and they are still known in our culture to be stubborn. And then he ends the sermon by drawing on the story. You remember the story right at the end. We'll read it in, in next week's liturgy, I believe, when Jesus sends the disciples into the city to get the foal of the donkey. So he's already called them asses. He ends the sermon by saying, remember the story where Jesus sends the people, sends his disciples in to get the donkey's foal. He said, that's who we are, the bishops. We are the ones who have to come and get you, asses, and lead you to Jesus so Jesus can ride on you into his glory. Now that's clever. That's clever, right? Because it's simultaneously praise and insult. And I have done that before, and I'm going to keep doing that. 
Well, what, part of what makes this such a, a genius move on Augustine's part is in, he is in the middle of what is called the Donatus controversy. So you don't need to know much about it except to say what had happened at the beginning of the 4th century, so in the 300s, a Roman emperor had, begin, had begun to persecute Christians again, and a lot of Christians had been killed, including St. Vincent, Vincent, whom they're celebrating in this occasion. And during that time, and in the years that followed, some Christians were faithful, and some Christians even sought out martyrdom, and some Christians were not faithful, as I'm sure I would not be if people were threatening to take my life. And so, in the aftermath of the persecution, these Donatist bishops, who are African Christian leaders, they take a hard line. And what they say is, we don't want any bishops, any priests, or any deacons who were in any way unfaithful under persecution. We want our bishops, priests, and deacons to be pure. And no sacrament, no baptism, no confirmation, no Lord's Supper that they perform, if they were unfaithful, can be valid. And this creates an enormous controversy. What do we do with people who were ordained who weren't faithful when their lives were on the line? When they really had to face the hard truth of persecution and they failed, what do we do after the fact? And Augustine argues vehemently and he writes hundreds of thousands of words and preaches dozens if not hundreds of sermons and writes dozens if not hundreds of letters addressing what he believes is the most important controversy of his lifetime, which is the idea that ministry is only valid if the minister is perfect. And Augustine says, this cannot be true. If this is true, everything will collapse. God is perfect. We are not. But God works his perfection through our imperfect ministries and imperfect lives. So Augustine believes everything depends on this. So remember, In this particular occasion, he's lost his temper with a crowd who won't shut up. So he's got to address what he calls their disobedience. He's also disobeyed his bishop in the midst of all that. And he's addressing a crowd under the influence of Donatists who say, you have to be perfect in order to be useful to God. And so by drawing on this image of you're the asses we lead to Jesus so that he can ride on you into your glory. What he's doing is threading this needle, this tiny needle. He's threading the needle by saying, obedience in and of itself isn't what matters. But you have to learn to obey if you want to be yielded to what God wants for you. Now here's the thing. We're 1,600 years removed from that. We're on the other side of the world. But obedience is just as hard to talk about now as it was then. It is hard to thread that needle for entirely different reasons, but it is incredibly difficult to talk about obedience without failing one way or another, without making it sound Donatist, without making it sound as if your obedience to God or your obedience to someone is what's going to save you, or without sounding as if obedience in and of itself is bad, as if we shouldn't obey. It's very difficult to do. Our text today, force obedience on us. So I want to tell you one more story and then we'll go to those texts. April 9th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. He had two services that day, one at the Ebenezer Baptist Church and then afterward a public event. 
There was an Assemblies of God minister, his name was Calvin Bacon, who lived in Atlanta, and he went to the funeral and then wrote a report, that's what he called it, about the funeral for his denominational magazine, which came out in July, I believe, of that year, 1968. So in that report, he remembers having been at the service, and he said, I don't know why I went. I didn't particularly like Martin Luther King Jr. And you may or may not know this, but at the time, MLK was, was widely, almost universally despised. Like now we think of him as a hero, but at the time, I mean, he, there's a reason he was assassinated, right? People hated him, overwhelmingly hated him. And this Assemblies of God minister is no different. He said, I don't know why I went. I was deeply troubled by this man, but I went. And he said, I did respect that he was raising a real problem. He said, it's true that our, and this is his word, our Negro brothers and sisters were not treated rightly. But the way MLK is addressing this is all wrong, he says, because the Bible strictly forbids civil disobedience. This is his argument. The Bible strictly forbids civil disobedience. And so he says, I don't know what to make of why I went. I don't approve of what he did. And I believe that he is to blame for what he calls the racial unrest. So he gets in his car after the service to drive home. And he says, a scripture comes to my mind. Now, try to imagine for a moment, you've been to MLK's funeral, right? You've heard the songs, you've heard the sermon, you've seen this procession. You get in your car and a verse comes to mind, a Bible verse. Does anybody want to guess which Bible verse came to this Assemblies of God minister's mind? Let slaves obey their masters in every regard, so that the name of God is not blasphemed. Now think about that. Let that set on you for just a moment. He went to MLK's funeral, gets back in his car, and the Bible verse that comes to mind to him is one about slavery. And then he concludes from that, and I'm happy to, to let you read this if you're interested. He concludes from that, that whenever people who are supposed to obey rebel, God's judgment falls on them. Now, you don't have to be bright to see what he's doing. That he's looking at 1960s America, he's looking at the civil rights movement and what he calls the racial unrest, and he's saying, we know why America is in the trouble it's in. Because those who should have obeyed did not and their rebellion is bringing judgment on all of us. So when I say it's hard to talk about obedience, it's hard to talk about obedience. Because we live on this side of so much abusive talk about obedience and abusive talk about disobedience. We live in a culture in which it is very difficult to find ways of talking about obedience that don't end up either affirming some kind of authoritarianism or some kind of freedom that essentially is radical individualism. You do whatever you want, who can say anything to you about it? And what's worst of all is that most of us hold to both of those things at the same time. 
Right? So, and I don't need to give you a bunch of personal examples. You, you're on Facebook. You know. <laughs> but you can see someone who, out of this side of their mouth, is praising this leader for their authority and in the same breath condemning someone else for being oppressive. Like we see this all the time where there's this, this fundamental contradiction. So when a leader does what we want, we thank God for the leader. When a leader, do, a leader in the same position does something we don't like, we cry out about oppression and tyranny. And that contradiction is part of what it means to live in our moment. But as I'm hoping to show you by appealing to Augustine's story, some of that's just human condition. It doesn't matter when you live or where you live. There's something about the sin in us that makes it so we love authority when it gives us what we want, and we hate authority when it doesn't. And so we insist that people obey. So, for instance, just to give one example to stir the pot just a little bit, and I'll ask my bishop's forgiveness later for this example. <laughs> but think about how in the same breath people can appeal to Romans 13 when they see people rioting or protesting for things they don't like and insist, don't protest, don't riot. Romans 13 says we're supposed to submit. And then those same people turn around after an election and a new president is in the same position as the one before, whom they called for support of. Now they protest what is being required of them. And there's no sense at all of the contradiction. And vice versa. It works just the same the other way. People who protest and riot in protest about some kind of rule they don't like turn around and say, but you shouldn't protest and riot. You believe Romans 13. This is part of what it's meant to be a Christian in America in the last three or four years. Absolute contradictions held together nonsensically because we like some things and we don't like others. And we appeal to rules that we like and we protest rules we don't like without any sense at all of how we sound when we do that. Right? It's a little bit like my kids, right, who love to obey you know, my son the other day, I got a call from my youngest, Emery. I got a call from him. He'd asked me to bring him a drink. He was up the street, and I did. He calls me. He's crying. Dad, I'm so sorry. I just want you to know, and I'm going to feign a little bit of his pathos. He says, I want you to know that I love you so much, and it was incredible of you to take time out of your day to drive up here and bring me that drink. And my friends have spilled it. And I just want you to know that matters to me, that you would come here. And now, and now they've spilled it after all of that you've done for me. I'm not kidding. This is how he's talking to me. I have him on speakerphone. And the people around me are like, oh, he's so sweet. And I'm shaking my head, no, 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 no. No, he's not. Because I'm his dad. I know what's coming next. And he says, do you think you could bring me another one? Right? That, that's in us. That's in us. So all of that is preamble to this. Just a few minutes I want to talk about. What does it mean to obey then? How as Christians are we supposed to understand what it means to obey? Because whatever our cultural context, there are pressures on us to obey and pressures to disobey. And the sin in us is drawn toward the obedience that profits us and away from any obedience that seems costly for us. So what do we do? 
In the New Testament reading for the day, Hebrews 5, we're told that though he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Do you see that passage? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now this passage might suggest to us, if, if we didn't know scripture well and we didn't know our creed well, it might suggest to us that Jesus is learning something he doesn't know. That he's submitted to the Father because he's inequal. He's subordinate. He's inferior. Listen to how the text reads. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this passage, on the face of it, yields all kinds of misreadings. If you didn't know what you were doing, if you didn't know Scripture well and you didn't know the creed well, if you'd leave the Scripture up if you would, there are all kinds of places here where we would go wrong. The first one is, it seems like what's being said is that Jesus cries out to God who's able to save him from death and is heard. So what does that seem to say? Jesus cries out to be saved from death. He's heard. What would that mean? He's going to be saved from death. Except those of you who know the story, spoiler alert, what actually happens? He dies. So being heard by God, being saved from death, doesn't mean he's kept from dying. He is saved from death, but he has to die first. He's saved out of death, not kept from dying, saved from death, raised up from the dead. Right? So that's, that's a first misreading. He cries out to God, he's heard, he's saved from death, but not kept from dying. The second one is that he's heard, the second misreading, is that he's heard because he's an inferior who convinces a superior to care for him. But again, if we know our creed, what do we know? Jesus is God, co-equal, co-eternal, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, right? That he is God's equal. He is God. So whatever is happening here is not an inferior convincing a superior to show mercy on him, but is in some way God, in equality with God, enacting submission in such a way that something is changed. And this is the crucial theological point. Nothing happens to God. God happens to everything. This, this is fundamental, and I know we're in deep waters, but you can't talk about obedience without getting in deep waters. Remember, the noisy end of the pool is the shallow end, right? So it's going to get quieter, but, but stay with me. You're not going to drown, I promise. So he says, this is God in acting submission. He's, Hebrew says that he's heard for his reverent submission, but who is heard? The one who is equal with God is heard. He takes on submission, but he is not changed, it is changed. So the church fathers, when they talk about Jesus being baptized, they make this point over and over again. That when Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, he is not being changed, 
the waters of baptism are being changed. He has no sin to wash away. So what happens is the sinless one enters into the baptism for sins in order to sanctify that baptism for us. So when Jesus goes down into the waters, he's not being made holy. They are. Why does the water of baptism save us? Because Jesus was baptized and he charged the waters with the holiness of God. When he is in Mary's womb, when he's the fetus in her belly, he's not changed. She is. And this is why Athanasius and other church fathers will say the uncontainable lives within the container of his mother. Encompassing all things, he is encompassed. Without changing, he becomes flesh. The incarnation changes nothing for God. It changes everything for us. Everything for us. So when the one who is God obeys God, he's not submitted in some way that makes him inferior. He's submitted in a way that creates our equality in God through obedience. Stay with me just for a moment. I'm almost done. Think about what this does. Nothing happens to God. God happens to everything. So why does Jesus obey? And why does he, as the text say, learn obedience through what he suffers? So church fathers, medieval theologians, modern theologians, reflecting on this passage, this is, this is what the tradition says. In a sense, Jesus has nothing to learn. He, he not only knows all things, he is the truth of all things. So what he's doing here in learning obedience is actually teaching us what obedience is like when we're filled up with the life of God. He's not being brought low. He's taking obedience and he's raising it up into something else. Remember what happens on the night before he's betrayed. He washes the feet of his disciples, not by making himself less than them, but by showing them that his service of them is what draws them into equality. Obedience, when God enacts it, is not about an inferior pleasing a superior, but about equality, commonality, mutuality, love, friendship. This is why Jesus says to his disciples, I do not call you slaves, I call you friends. That sounds wonderful, right? Does anybody know what the next word out of his mouth is? And you are my friends if you obey me. What? I mean, what kind of friendship is that, right? Unless what he means is, because you are my friends, you know what obedience really is. Obedience is not about you, an inferior, doing what I, an, a superior, demand of you. It's about friends doing what is needed for one another to be brought into full flourishing, being brought into all that God promises us, into the full delight of God being God. Two minutes and I'll be done. I know it doesn't seem like I could be, but I will be. <laughs> so in the gospel today, in the gospel today, we're told that some Greeks come to see Jesus. I love this text. It's, it's one of the funniest texts in scripture to me. So if, you, if when they come, they come and they ask to see Jesus. If you could put that scripture up, I want everyone to see it from John 12. 
They came to Philip and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, Philip clearly does not know what to do. So Philip goes to Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I love this because what you can see happening is Philip saying, I don't know, I'm going to mess this up. Andrew, you come with me. That way when we get this wrong, right, there's, a, there's someone else for the blame to fall on. So they come to Jesus, the two of them together, and say to Jesus, listen, there are some, some folks here who want to see you. They're, they're Greeks. Like, that's why Philip is scared, right? Because he doesn't know how Jesus is going to interact with these outsiders. And he doesn't know whether or not he wants to be seen talking to Jesus about these outsiders. Like, so these Greeks want to talk to Jesus, and look at how Jesus answers. Jesus is always maddeningly obtuse. I mean, there, Jesus never says anything anybody understands, especially in the Gospel of John. You get two responses with Jesus. Seriously, you only get two responses. Either you think you know what he means and you're completely wrong, and, and people in the Gospel laugh at you, right? Or you think you know what he means and you want to kill him. But those are the only two possibilities. Right? So they say to Jesus, listen, these, these Greeks want to see you. And Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Not really answering the question, Jesus, right? We just wanted to introduce you to some folks. <laughs> what in the world is he saying? Why doesn't he just say, okay, that seems like a sensible response, or not right now. Or tell them to come back tomorrow. No, it's nothing like that. It's whatever this is. A grain of wheat must fall. Jesus, seriously. But here's, here's what Jesus is teaching. If I had as long as Augustine took that day in Carthage, I could explain this more fully. But here's the point. What Jesus is saying is, they're not going to see me until they see me in you. They, they're not going to see me. They're going to see you. And in seeing you, they're going to see me. Just as he says of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And how do we see Jesus? In each other. In, in the language of Ephesians, we are the fullness of him who fills everything with himself. If you want to see Jesus, look at his body. But here's the, here's the hard part. We don't look like Jesus until we die like he does. Unless that grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it doesn't bring forth fruit. Where I am, my disciples will be also. Well, where is he? In the ground dead. That's where he is. And this is what obedience is for Christians. It is a death. It is a death. You are dying to yourself. And in that dying to yourself, you are coming into the place of Jesus, the place of the grain of wheat dead in the ground. But precisely because of that, precisely because your obedience is a death to yourself and a submission to that that he submitted to, you become his 
equal. You're his co-embodiment. You become his partner. You become his friends. You become his body, his bride. And in that way, you share in his life. That line, where I am, there my servant will be also, is used not only of his death in John's gospel, but also of his eternal life as the word. So here's the good news, bad news. If you want what the gospel promises you, you can't have it without obedience. Not because your reward for obedience is life, but because when you take the shape of obedience, you're taking the shape of the life that is your fullness. You don't obey in order to please God. You obey so that the pleasure of God can come alive in you. It's only in obedience that you line yourself up with what God has always wanted to you. It's only in death that you're raised to life. So here's what it turns out to be on the other side. Obedience on this side feels like I'm not my will, but your will. It feels like death. And it's hard. Jesus says today, my soul is troubled. So on this side of obedience, it hurts. But on that side of obedience, you realize if it weren't for that, I would have never known who I am. I would have never known that I'm the beloved. I would never know that I'm a son and a daughter in the son. I would never know that God lives in me and that greater is he who is in me than he is who is in the world. So in Lent and in Holy Week, next week when you come to hear that I'm priested, there's going to be a line in my priesting in which I say that I will obey my bishops. What am I saying? I'm going to lie down on the ground and they're going to put a pall over me, not a father pall, which would be awkward, but <laughs> a sheet. Remember that next week. It's going to be awkward enough. Not that awkward though. They're going to put a sheet over me. And you know what that signifies? How many of you were here when Bishop Ed was consecrated as bishop? Not here, but here, you know what I mean? And there lying on the ground, they put a sheet over him. What was happening? He was dying in order to be himself. Who he already was in God. He couldn't realize it until that grain of wheat died and came to life. So I've taken too long, but I want to press this. Obedience is God's first, so it can be ours in ways that give life. Don't fear obedience. And in fact... Don't fear good disobedience because good obedience and good disobedience are both rooted in the life of a God who embodies this so we can be his friends, his bride, his body. All right, I'm going to shut up. Bishop, forgive me. I love you all.